Well, the title of today's sermon, I don't usually put a whole lot of thought in the, in the title of the sermons because who cares? It's, but uh, I did put some thought into this week's sermon title. It's called Salvation Comes Only from the Lord. That's a direct quote from Jonah's prayer from the belly of the whale. Uh, Salvation comes only from the Lord. That's probably one of the most important verses in the whole Bible. Found right, right in the middle of the book of Jonah. Prayed right from the belly of a whale. Salvation comes only from the Lord. Uh, but that's not the original title that I came up with for this sermon. The original title that I didn't go with is this. From Swallowed to Vomited. That's, uh, that's what I was going to go with, but it was recommended to me that I not put vomited in the title of a sermon, which is, which is probably good advice. But, but that is what our passage covers, right? If the, the last verse of Jonah chapter 1, Jonah's thrown overboard, and then the last verse of Jonah 1, Jonah's swallowed. And then the entirety of chapter 2 is Jonah's prayer while he's inside the whale. We've already heard that this morning. And then the chapter ends with him being vomited out. What we're going to discover is that it's between being swallowed and vomited that Jonah discovers grace. Okay, between those two two very uh, dramatic events in Jonah's life, between being swallowed and vomited, that's the place where Jonah finds grace. Jonah discovers grace. And that is, in fact, so often the case. So often it's right at our lowest point that we discover just how much we need God and just how present he is with us. So uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to it again. I've already, I've already read Jonah's prayer from the belly of the whale, and I'm not going to read those verses again, but there are the bookends, the, the, the swallowing and the vomiting that I, that I do want to read. So, I'll start with the last verse of Jonah in chapter 1, which is verse uh, 17, and it says this, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and he said, the prayer that we've already read earlier in the service. And then I'm going to go right to, the, to verse 10 of chapter 2. It says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Holy Father, I know without a doubt that you have something for each one of us to learn from the prayer that Jonah prayed from the belly of that fish. And the reason I'm so sure of that is because you wouldn't have recorded it in Holy Scripture unless you had something for us to learn from it, something to teach us, some grace to impart to us, some way that you, the potter, desire to shape us into the people and the church that you want us to be. There's no question that that's the case because you have seen fit to preserve this prayer in your scriptures. And so now I pray that you would help us to understand what was happening inside the belly of this great fish and, and, and understand the, um, the importance of the content of these words that Jonah prayed. And then I pray that you would shape us by them. I pray that we would be different. I do pray that every single one of us who hear the words of this sermon would walk out of here or 
or from at home would, would be different, would be changed, would be not the same that we were before we heard these words. That's not something that I can accomplish. We all know that. But you can by your spirit. And so please do. Amen. All right, well, from the very start of the story, now we're, I don't, I don't know, three or four weeks in to looking at the story of Jonah, and what, what, what's been consistent throughout up to this point is that Jonah has been traveling downward. Have you noticed that? Jonah goes down to Joppa. Jonah goes down then into the ship. Jonah then goes down even deeper, we're told, into the depths of the ship, still traveling downward. Then he goes down even deeper into the depths of the ocean. So he's just been traveling downward this whole time. And it's at the bottom of this downward descent that Jonah discovers grace or rediscovers grace because he already was a prophet of the Lord. He probably already had some sense of grace, but he rediscovers or discovers it in a new and deeper way when he's down in the deeps of the ocean. Now there's a common saying in Christian circles that you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Have you heard that? You, know, you never quite fully realize. You might know it in theory, but you don't really know it. You don't really know that Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. Now the reason that's a common saying is because it has been proven, proven true over and over again in life after life. The usual place, now not the only place, I get that, but the usual place to learn the secrets of God's grace is at the bottom. For example, if you just, I, I, I just made a short list of heroes from the Bible who learned hard lessons that way. The Bible's full of people like that. I, I thought of Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, David, Elijah, Peter. We could keep going. But each one of those characters became powerful leaders through failure and through suffering. At the bottom. So often it's through suffering that God shapes and forms us into the people that he wants us to be. So it's at the bottom of this downward journey that Jonah finally decides to cry out to God in prayer. We should notice that when God called Jonah to the difficult task of ministering to the Ninevites, Jonah did not stop and pray for courage. We should notice that when Jonah took off for Joppa, he did not pray for guidance. We should notice that when Jonah bought a ticket to Tarshish, he did not pray for a safe journey. And when the ship was hit by a great storm, Jonah did not pray to be delivered. This is not a coincidence. Jonah was running away from the Lord. We're told that, right? He was trying to flee the presence of the Lord. Therefore, he did not turn to the Lord in prayer. Praying to God is the opposite of fleeing from the presence of the Lord. But now... Now Jonah's praying because now Jonah's been brought low to the bottom. He's at the end of his rope. Jonah found grace at the bottom. Now, did Jonah fully understand everything at this point? No, probably not. Like us, uh, Jonah had to learn and relearn certain lessons over and over again. But Jonah is beginning to rediscover grace. We can tell that from the way that he praise. 
So he's, he's rediscovering grace. He's understanding it in a new and a, in a, in a more profound way. So let's, let's think together about what it is that Jonah is rediscovering. What is God's grace? What is God's grace? I've, I've said before that I believe jo- the book of Jonah is all about God's grace, about the broadness of God's grace. Well, what is it? What are we talking about? What is God's grace? The word is all over our Bibles. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the word is hen, like the bird. Hen, that's the Hebrew word for grace. And in, in Greek, the word is charis. Uh, those words mean undeserved favor. They're translated grace. They mean compassion, kindness. The concept of grace is so central to the Christian faith that the Apostle Paul equates understanding the grace of God with becoming a Christian. He equates those two things. To understand and receive God's grace is to be a Christian. And to misunderstand God's grace is to miss the whole point of Christianity. It's it's that central. Paul writes this to the Colossians. He says, The gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God. That's what he says. So for Paul, understanding grace is synonymous with being a Christian. The day you understand and receive the grace of God is the day that you're saved. It's, it's that important. And given that it's that important, it's probably taking some time this morning to make sure that we understand what we're talking about. What is grace? All right, well, that's, what we'll, that's how we'll spend our time then. Part of, part of the package of being a human being is a built-in desire to belong, right? You feel that. I know you feel that. I feel that. We all feel that. Every human who has ever lived feels that. We want to belong. We want to be in a community, in a, in a place where we're loved unconditionally for who we are, where we're welcomed, where we're received, where we fit in. Everybody wants that. Everybody's looking for that. This is why being part of a healthy, loving family is such an important part of emotional health. Right? It's how we're built. It's how we're designed. This is why being part of a healthy church is such an important part of the Christian life. It's how we're built. It's how we're designed. It's what we need. We talked about this a lot in our men's meeting yesterday. So grace is God saying to us, you belong. You're you're in. I love you and I am welcoming you into my family. That's grace. Saying you fit, you, you fit in here. You're welcome here. You're in. That's grace. That's God's grace to us. But in order to understand the magnitude of God's grace to us, it's essential that we recognize we have been, God has welcomed us into a place that we don't deserve to be. That's, that's, that's part of the package of grace, is that God has welcomed us into a place that we don't deserve to be. It's not as if we showed up with a ticket that we bought, um, and we, we said, well, here's my ticket. I, I'm in because I belong here. I have a right to be here. That's not it. That's not grace. People who have purchased tickets, they do have a right to pass through the gate and attend the event. That's the point of the ticket. But understanding God's grace means recognizing that we have been let into a place that we don't deserve to be. 
and not just let in, but loved and welcomed and celebrated. I always think of the, when I think of that, I think of the father uh, in the prodigal son story, right? Like he was so excited to welcome his son back into the home, he couldn't even stand and wait for him, right? He, he ran out to greet him. He was that happy, that excited. That's how God welcomes us. God basically says to us, look, look, you don't deserve to be, let's be honest, let's, let's, be, let's be clear, let's speak the truth, you don't deserve to be here. <laughs> you don't deserve to be here, but you are welcome here nonetheless. You are loved, and you, you belong, even though you don't deserve to be here, you belong here, and you will always be welcome here. Not because you deserve it, but because this is my gift to you. Until we get that, we won't understand grace. So I want to I pull out four points about grace from Jonah's prayer. Okay? First point is, is, is this. First point about grace is this. We are sinners. <laughs> All right, so why start there? Well, we won't understand the blessing of grace until we recognize our need of it, right? If we're still thinking that we arrived at the gate with the ticket... If we're still thinking that, yeah, we really, we have a right to be part of God's family. If we still think that, then we won't get grace, right? Let me give you three examples. You tell me which one is grace, okay? First example, a person uh, works hard at their, at their place of employment for two weeks, and at the end of the two-week pay period, uh, their employer uh, gives them their paycheck. Is that grace? No, that's not grace. Why is that not grace? Because the person worked hard and earned it. And they are owed that money. It's part of the deal. I'll work for you. You will pay me. If you work hard, you earn your paycheck, and your employer owes it to you. That's not grace. Well, how about this? Somebody volunteers to serve in the church. Let's say they volunteer for four decades. They're a Sunday school teacher. And they just give of themselves. They get no, they, it's a volunteer position. They're not paid, but they're there all the time, spending their time to, to raise up, uh, these kids in the way of the Lord. And, and then after four decades, they decide, well, they're, they, they, they need a break. They're done. And so uh, they step down from that position. And then the church holds a thank you dinner to celebrate the work that that person has done. And maybe they, they give, them a, give them a generous gift or something. I don't know, a, a, a watch or something. They give, them, they give them a gift. Now, is that grace? Well, it's... It, it, it's a, it feels like grace a little bit because that person wasn't owed that, right? They, the, the deal was it was a volunteer position. And so they volunteered their time, and it was, it was very generous of them to do that. But they're not owed a celebratory dinner. They're not owed a gift of a watch. But the reason that's not grace is because it, it, it's still deserved. Right? After serving for four decades, even though it's not owed, it's deserved. Right? That, that person has generously given of herself to, to serve in that ministry. And so in a way, recognizing that, honoring that, it makes sense. It's deserved. So it's, that doesn't quite qualify as grace. So how about this third scenario? Let's say you have a neighbor that is it's hard to live next to. Let's, let's put it that way. You have a neighbor that's, that's obnoxious and hard to, 
hard to love, hard to even be around. You have a neighbor who cranks their music all the time at, at two in the morning and you can't sleep. And when you ask them very politely to turn it down, they turn it up instead. But when you put your music on and you don't even have it up very loud, they call the police on you. And when you go out and if you leave your garage unlocked, you know that neighbor's going to sneak over and steal your stuff. And if you catch him, he's going to say, oh, I was just borrowing it and I forgot. But you know he would have never returned it if you didn't catch him. And it's just a very, very hard person to live next to, a very hard person to love. And then and then you find out that this individual that is such a source of, uh, uh, of frustration in your life is sick. He's sick and nobody likes him. And so nobody's taking care of him. Nobody cares that he's sick. And so you go over and you say, hey, I heard that you're not feeling well. What can I do to serve you? How can I serve you? Do you need groceries? Do you need meals? Do you need, are you not able to get out of bed? Do you need me to carry over all my stuff that you took? Would it help you if I just took my stuff back to my house? How can I, how can I help you out, right? What is that? That's grace, right? Yeah, that, that neighbor has every reason to be upset with the, the unkind neighbor that lives next to him, Right? They don't have any reason to go and help them. It's not, it's not earned. It's not deserved. It's the opposite of what's deserved. It's showing love in response to hate. That's grace. That's grace. In Jonah's case, we watched Jonah willfully rebel against a clear command from God. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, no. Jonah went in the opposite direction. That's sin, running away from God. And we all do that. And grace starts there because if, if we weren't sinners, we wouldn't need grace. Once Jonah is at his lowest, he gets that. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. That implies that when his life was going okay, when he, when he wasn't in the process of being digested by a whale... He had forgotten God. In fact, he was trying to get away from God. So Jonah needed to come to the point in his life where he was able to own the fact that he is, in fact, a sinner, no better than anyone else who's ever lived. He's the grumpy neighbor who is entirely undeserving of any grace or favor. And so are we. We're, we're that neighbor. Not the good neighbor. We're the grumpy neighbor. Point number two about grace is that not only are we sinners, but it gets even worse. We can't save ourselves. We're sinners who can't fix the problem that we got ourselves in. Jonah prays, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. The bars closed in on me. That's the prayer of a man who knows full well that he is not going to get himself out of there through his own efforts. He cannot save himself. If he could save himself, he wouldn't need grace. Now, the theological word to describe this condition is depravity. I know that word sounds kind of old-fashioned. I know that word sounds kind of harsh. But it is an important point 
of doctrine. The doctrine of depravity does not teach that everything everyone does is evil all the time. It does not teach that. All humans are created in the image of God. All humans are capable of doing wonderful things. Humans are amazing. But depravity means that we are not capable of saving ourselves. No one is good enough to do that. Now, in a society like ours that's dominated by a cult of self-esteem, the doctrine of depravity is unpopular, right? What we want to be told is that you can do anything you set your mind to. Don't let anyone tell you different, right? And I tell my kids that all the time, right? You can, you can do whatever you want. Just, just, just give yourself to it, work at it, and you can achieve it. And in general, that's true. People are amazing. It's incredible what we can accomplish when we commit to it and put in full effort. But one thing we cannot do, no matter how hard we try, is save ourselves, right? It's like the strongest man in the world that can lift anything but himself, that's one thing we cannot do. Jonah needed to come to a point in his life where he came to terms with the fact that he was in way over his head and if there was any possibility that he was going to be saved from where he was, it was going to have to be a sovereign work of the Lord because he could not save himself. And that's exactly where God wants us because it's from that position of recognized dependence that we're able to receive God's gift of grace. And until we get to that point, we'll constantly be trying to earn God's favor by our works. There's a wonderful hymn, one of my, one of my favorite hymns. Uh, it's, it's not about Thanksgiving, so I can't, re I can't request it this afternoon. But it's a great hymn by Isaac Watts. It's called, I Boast No More. I Boast No More. And the, the third verse of this song is the one that gets me. This, the third verse says, The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before thy throne, right? That, that's profound. The best obedience of my hands, right? I know there are some days when I'm so ashamed of what I've done that I wouldn't appear before God's throne, but the best obedience of my hands, my best days, my best sacrificial things that I've done that I felt so good about, even those things dare not appear before thy throne. The, the verse goes on and says, but faith can answer thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. My best works don't get to appear before your throne, but by faith, the works that my Savior has done for me, they will. All right, so grace begins with a recognition that I am a sinner and I am unable to save myself. The third point about grace is that a great sacrifice is always required. And you, you hear that and say, well, wait a minute, I thought grace was free. Yeah, it's not a sacrifice made by the one who receives the grace. It's free to receive it, but a sacrifice by the one who gives the grace. Right? Take the example about the nasty neighbor. That gift of love and compassion, that didn't cost the neighbor anything. The, the mean neighbor, right? It, didn't, it was free. But it required great sacrifice on behalf of the one who's been consistently sinned against in order to offer the gift of grace. And I think sometimes we think of God's grace as him simply kind of shrugging his divine shoulders and deciding that, well, actually sin's no big deal. You're fine. Well, that is the opposite of God's grace. In fact, God determined that sin is such a big deal that only he can do something about it. And his solution was the most radical and costly thing that's ever been done. 
And so Jonah, who has finally recognized the gravity of his situation, that he is a sinner running from God in the belly of a whale, unable to save himself, makes a reference to the temple. Why? Why is he talking about the temple from the belly of a whale? Verse 4 says, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Verse 7 says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Why is he talking about the temple in his prayer from the belly of a whale? Well, he's talking about the temple because he knows he needs mercy and that God has promised to speak to us over the mercy, the seed of mercy, which is found in the temple. The seed of mercy, as you probably know, is a slab of gold covering the top of the Ark of the Covenant, inside which rested the Ten Commandments. And on the Day of Atonement, the priest would sprinkle the blood of the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people over the mercy seat of God. We know all about this because this past spring, we had the bronze altar right here. And we talked all about those sacrifices and the shed blood and what they did with that blood. One of, one of the things which they did is sprinkle that blood on the seat of mercy. And that was a picture of grace. The Ten Commandments representing the perfect moral righteousness of God, which no human being has ever perfectly kept. If we approach God according to the law, we stand condemned. Right? The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before thy throne. Except for the blood of the atoning sacrifice, which has now been sprinkled over the Ten Commandments, on the mercy seat, shielding us from condemnation. See, even back then, it was understood that the death of another secures our forgiveness so that we can have relationship with God. Now, Jonah and the Israelites didn't know it at the time, but that image, we know, was pointing forward to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who would shed his blood for people who didn't deserve it so that we could be reconciled to a holy God and made part of his family. That's grace. And the reason why grace is so often found in the valley when we're at our lowest is because that's the place where we have to confront our inability to save ourselves. That's the place where we finally recognize, not just in theory but for real, our absolute dependence on God for all things. And that brings us to our final point about grace. Grace begins with a recognition that we're sinners Grace acknowledges that we cannot save ourselves. Grace understands that there is always a cost to the one who extends the grace. And finally, once we understand grace and receive it as a divine gift that it is, grace changes everything and results in a life of radical joy. See, the progression of grace starts with sin, but it ends with joy. Jonah begins the prayer with phrases like, you cast me into the deep, the flood surrounded me, your waves and billows passed over me, I've been driven from your sight, the waters closed over me to take my life, on and on and on. That's how it begins. That's about as low as, as, as he goes. But then right there at the bottom, Jonah says this, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, and what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation comes only from the Lord. Jonah's prayer from the depths ends with a shout of joy. 
He cannot save himself, but he doesn't have to save himself because salvation comes only from the Lord. And once we understand that, once we grasp grace, everything changes and we are empowered to live lives of radical joy because nothing will ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what is that going to mean for Jonah? Well, as I keep saying, he's not perfect from here on out, as we'll see as we keep reading the book. But once Jonah gets a good handle on grace, Jonah is then empowered to joyfully obey even the most difficult commands from the Lord. It puts his life on a new direction of obedience. And that's what it means for you and I as well. Once we get a good firm grasp on grace, right? Once we understand all, the, all these points that we've been talking about, about grace, then we'll find that we're able to rejoice in all circumstances, and we're able to joyfully obey no matter what commandment God gives. That is the practical power of grace in the Christian life. All right, we're coming up on Reformation Sunday next week, uh, and so I think it's fitting for me to uh, close the sermon with an illustration of the power of grace from the life of Martin Luther. What was the thing that revolutionized Martin Luther's life? What was the thing that enabled him literally to change the world? Well, it was his understanding of the doctrine of grace. That's what fueled the Reformation, the doctrine of grace. Prior to Martin Luther's big insight into grace, he was a miserable Christian. He was a monk, he was a professor of theology, but God's grace hadn't penetrated his heart yet. He thought he was wrong, but he thought that God hated him because he didn't measure up. And by his own confession, he hated God right back. The problem was that he knew that he, didn't, he, he wasn't good enough, he wasn't holy enough, he didn't measure up to God's standard, and so he walked around feeling guilty and afraid that God would ultimately reject him. Here's Martin Luther's own description of, of his life back then. He said, I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I would have killed myself with vigils and prayers and reading and other work. That's not grace, that's works. And it's making him miserable. And then Martin Luther has an encounter with God's grace in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 17, which says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. That changed, under, a, a new understanding of grace changed Martin Luther's life. He says, I continued to beat upon the door of Romans 1.17, trying to figure out what God wanted. Good works, fasting, prayer, penance, indulgences. What? At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I finally paid attention to the context of the words, and I began to understand that the righteousness of God is not something that we earn, but it is a gift received from God by grace. He finally understood grace and the, 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 the burden of guilt and shame lifted off his shoulders and he became a joyful Christian. He was miserable before, but he became a joyful Christian and he became a brave Christian, willing to obey God no matter what called him to do. In fact, so brave and courageous that he was willing to stand up to the powers that be at the time at risk of his own life in order to speak on behalf 
of God's grace. The thing that changed everything for him, that gave him joy and courage and obedience, was his understanding of the doctrine of grace. And that's the thing that's happening in the life of Jonah as well as he's in the belly of the fish coming to a new understanding of what grace is all about. And that's the thing that needs to happen for you and I as well as continually coming to a deeper understanding of what grace is all about so that we might live joyful, faithful, and obedient lives. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for your grace It's an easy word to say, it's a big concept, and it's one that we need to be regularly reminded of. So I thank you for the opportunity to be reminded this morning. It sounds funny, but I am thankful that you have reminded us that we are sinners. That's not good news, but it is true, and it's important. I thank you that you have reminded us that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves. Uh, if that is indeed our situation, that it, then it's important that we know it. I thank you for the reminder that there is a cost to grace. You have written that reminder into the pages of, of the Old Testament as well as the New, that grace is costly, not for the receivers of grace, but for the givers of grace. And I thank you that we are the receivers of grace and that you are the giver of grace. And I pray that having received that grace, that you would fill us with a radical joy, an unshakable joy in you, a joy that transcends any storms or circumstances that we find ourselves in. And I pray that you would make us radically obedient to your instructions, to your commands, that we would follow the path that you lay out for us and that we would follow it by grace. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.